Matthew chapter 14, we're at the very beginning. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. The word of God says this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this is a strange, strange story. And when we read it, Lord, we just think this is, this is bizarre and has nothing to do with our Messiah. Lord, would you reveal to us this morning exactly why this is in the Bible? And would you help us to understand better what's going on here? And Lord, would you show us this morning just how much like Herod we are, how much we need a Savior? In Christ's name, amen. Well, this week and next week, we're going to follow Matthew's comparison of two kings and their two banquets. The first king is Herod, the worldly king of Israel who throws himself a birthday party. And the second king is Jesus, our king, the anointed king, the king of the kingdom of heaven who feeds 5,000 needy people. And the point of this comparison that we're going to see isn't to say Herod is evil, Jesus is good, don't be evil like Herod, be good like Jesus. The last thing that any of us needs is a gospel-less, do-better sermon. The point is instead for all of us to come to the realization that we are all following one of these two kings. We are all growing in the image and in the likeness of one of these two kings. When we look at where this, this story is, this true story is, it's not an accident that Matthew places this incident where he does in his gospel. Just think of the last couple of verses from chapter 13, if you listened last week. Jesus taught us there at the end of chapter 13. He's in Nazareth. He's rejected by his own people. And, and one of the last things he said is that prophets are not honored by the people who should honor them. I'm paraphrasing. They're not honored by the people that they're sent to. 
And then the very next thing that Matthew tells us about is, is, is this John the Baptist, who's not honored by the people that he's sent to. Worse, he was killed by them. And, and if you're reading carefully, you'll see that John's death, John the prophet's death, is foreshadowing for us what will happen to the prophet who was rejected in Nazareth. Our text this morning is after that. It's after Jesus' rejection in Nazareth, but it comes before Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000. Last week, Jesus identifies himself as the prophet, the one who speaks the word of God. This week, we have John the Baptist, the forerunner prophet, who dies at the hands of a wicked king. This week, we have a wicked king who lays out a banquet for the rich and powerful. Next week, we have Jesus, the good king, who lays out a banquet for the hungry and the needy. See what Matthew's doing? He's weaving together for us a, a tapestry that in the end, when we step back, we'll see this is not just, not just a, a great biopic about the three years of Jesus' ministry. When we look back at Matthew's telling of events, we'll see clearly Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfills all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that were pointing to the Messiah. Remember, Matthew's gospel is not not just a news report. It's more than a news report, though the news is true and the news is good. And it's not just a history book. It's more than history, though the history is true. This is the gospel. It's the climax of God's great story. So isn't it fitting then that the way that Matthew writes it would just be so elegantly woven together. Well, without spending too much time on literary analysis, let's begin the examination of our first king, Herod. Let me give you some background to Herod for those of you who aren't familiar with the history. Herod is a pseudo-king. He rules as a a subsidiary puppet ruler subject to the Roman government. Remember that the Judean and Galilean territories aren't autonomous governments. They're territories of the Roman Empire. And this this Roman Empire in the the great grand storyline of the Bible is the fourth beast that rose up out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7 that made the way for the son of the man's revealing, the son of man's revealing. Herod is a representative of this massively powerful, worldly kingdom. And so Matthew, in verse 1, you still have your Bible open, he reminds us, Herod's a tetrarch. That's not a, not a word that many of us use, is it? It means he's, he's ruler over two of the four areas that his father's kingdom had been divided into, hence the word tetrarch. Tetra, in Greek, means fourth. Ark is ruler. So here we have tetrarch. When Matthew reminds us Herod is a tetrarch, it's like he's reminding us that Herod is only kind of a king. He is, if you will, assistant to the regional manager. So so there's there's a greater ruler, the emperor, Caesar, and then there are the regional semi-rulers, Herod and Archelaus and Philip, the brothers. Pontius Pilate, who we'll meet later on in Matthew's gospel, 
was sent by Rome to rule over the territory of Judea, one of these four regions, because Archelaus, one of those brothers of the sons of Herod the Great, failed. Basically, he caused, he was such a terrible ruler, he caused so much trouble and unrest in the region that he had to be deposed. So Pilate wasn't a tetrarch because he wasn't native to the region. He was instead a Roman-born governor sent to the region to rule in place of one of the natives. But Pilate's story comes later. We're not talking about Pilate today. For now, we're focusing on Herod. Herod, as you might have picked up on, is not to be confused with his father, Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the man who was ruling over all of the land of Israel when Jesus was born. He was the one who had all those baby boys killed in Bethlehem. But Herod the Great died not long after that event. When he died, Herod the Great willed that his kingdom be divided into fourths and given to his sons. And two of those four territories, Galilee in the north and Perea in the southeast, were granted to the Herod of our story, whose name was Antipas. Antipas was one of Herod the Great's 11 sons. He is the son of Herod's fourth wife, a woman named Malthes. The Philip in our story is Antipas's brother, the son of Herod the Great by his third wife, Miriam. And you're going to need to take notes here. Okay? Miriam, Philip's mom, is not to be confused with Herod's second wife, whose name was also Miriam. Now, why shouldn't we confuse the Miriams? Well, because the first Miriam, the second wife, is Herod's connection to the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans were from the family dynasty that came that had claim to the leadership of Israel between the Testaments, that is, after Malachi, but before Matthew. And if you're familiar with the book of Maccabees, the Hasmoneans descend from the Maccabee family. And if you don't know who the Maccabees are, they're the famous Jews who stood up to the Greek empire. The Maccabees were given the freedom because of their rebellion against the empire to rule over their own territory. And so they're, they're, they're kind of famous and well-known, and they were very Jewish. The family that Herod the Great comes from was not Jewish. They're part of a territory that was taken over by the Maccabee family when they ruled. They're the Iudemians. Let me see if I can pronounce this. Edumians. Edumians. And Herod's father was buddy-buddy with Julius Caesar. So you're kind of getting the intrigue here. When, when Herod the Great married Miriam, the first Miriam, the second wife, he, he brought a very Jewish family together with a very not Jewish family. And he made way for a government that was friendly to Jews, but wasn't particularly Jewish. They were Jewish-ish. They, they, had, they had the habit of appearing religious so that they could continue to lay claim to the throne but they lived in a way that was anything but obedient to the word of God. So let's keep going. The first Miriam is also important because she was the mother of Aristobulus who married Berenice, his cousin, whose parents were the brother and sister of Herod the Great. And together, these two cousins brought a lovely young lady into the world named Herodias. Herodias, when the opportunity arose, married her uncle Philip but dropped him like a bad habit when her other more powerful uncle, Antipas, the Herod of our story, fell madly in love with her and asked her to marry him. Herodias, always looking for power, agreed to 
the marriage to Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch of our story, on the condition that Herod divorce his Arabian princess wife. This princess was an obstacle to Herodias and her, and her climb to power. The princess's father was the king of Nabataea, the country that bordered Herod's southern territory. And this marriage arrangement had been made to keep the peace between these two territories. So Herod, overwhelmed with passion for his niece, also his brother's wife, agreed to leave the princess and all the political benefits that came from that marriage so that he could have his brother's wife. And then you can imagine, you can imagine the insult. You're a king of Nabataea, and you can imagine the insult of having your daughter dumped by your son-in-law so he could marry his brother's wife. That didn't sit well with this king. To him, this was unforgivable, and so he went to war with Herod, and Herod lost. So this, is, this, is, this is all information that if you were reading Matthew in the first century, you would already know. But it helps us, when we kind of get a glimpse of what's happening here historically, just see how corrupt all of this is. So now that we have Herod, Antipas, and Herodias hitched, there's one more character that we have to account for in this story. You already know who John the Baptist is. Herodias has a daughter from her first marriage, and her name is Salome. I don't think Matthew names her, but Mark does. Her name is Salome. And Salome, who was very influenced by her mother, will eventually marry Philip. Not her dad, Philip. A different Philip. Her uncle, other uncle, Philip. Herod the Great had two sons named Philip. One was a tetrarch and one wasn't. Salome married the tetrarch. Eventually, Simone... Simone, Salome. What's the name? Salome, thank you. I've got it wrong in my notes. Eventually, Salome left her uncle Philip for Aristobulus III, her cousin on her mom's side, which is really technically also her dad's side. So you should know, I hope by now, that you're feeling really good about your family, <laughs> right? That these are the characters in our story. Herod Antipas, also known as the Tetrarch, Herodias is niece and wife, and Salome, also his niece, but because she's his brother's daughter, his great-niece, but because she's his niece's daughter and his stepdaughter, anyway, we'll just call her Salome. Herod, though, is our focus, all right? And now I hope you can see, it's very clear, he's a worldly king. He's a very worldly king, in every sense of the word worldly. So let's turn now to our text and examine some of his defining characteristics. Look at verses one and two. Right from the beginning, starting in verses one and two, we see that the worldly king is guilt-ridden. In verse one, the fame of Jesus is spreading throughout the land and the news of this miracle man has reached Herod. And look what Herod says in response to, to hearing about this man. He says, well, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why he's, these miraculous powers are at work within him. And the rest of us, or the rest of our passage tells us the history of why Herod suspects John has risen from the dead. This is a, a paranoid delusion, isn't it? Herod is paranoid 
that John has risen from the dead because Herod had John assassinated. And the way he killed him was far from righteous. It was lust and pride, the fear of man and utter foolishness all combined leading to one murderous command. And as a result, Herod is burdened. He's burdened by the guilt of his actions. And his guilt so so torments him and shades his thinking that it's the first thing that comes to mind when he hears about Jesus. Not could this possibly be the Messiah, but this must be John the Baptist. He can't see Jesus for who he really is. Instead, Herod, self-centered King Herod, believes it's all about him. And if it's all about him, then this man must be coming for him. This man must be John the Baptist. So the first thing we should know about worldly kings is that they're all guilty. They're all guilty. Every last one of them. Guilt and the resulting paranoia and defensiveness. That's that's characteristic of a worldly king. Herod, though, was guilty long before he murdered John. He came into the world guilty, didn't he? He was brought forth in iniquity. He was conceived in sin, as David teaches in Psalm 51. You see, Herod comes from a long line of kings who descend from the world's first worldly king, King Adam. Adam was given the throne of the world, but was commanded to rule as a representative of the high king, God himself. Then King Adam brought sin into the world when he broke off from God's rule over him and tried to rule on his own. He wanted to represent himself as king rather than God. And that sin of Adam immediately brought guilt. It immediately brought shame into Adam's conscience. And that guilt and shame was passed from Adam to his sons, their sons, daughters, sons and daughters after them. So all the kings of Israel, from Saul to David, all the way down to Herod, they all bore the guilt of the first king, King Adam. And you're all, I hope, by now thinking and realizing this isn't just kings. It's not just kings who come into the world with this guilt. All of us do. All of us are born with the desire to rule over ourselves and our little kingdoms, and so we share in the result. We share in the guilt that comes from our desires. All of us are far more like Herod than we would care to admit. See, guilt comes from sin. It's not a phantom shadow. It's the very real result of the very real and present danger that we willfully introduce into our own lives, our rebellion against God. Herod's rebellion against God was in his heart at birth, but it became publicly known to everyone in the kingdom when he married his brother's wife. And it was this very, very public sin committed by a man pretending to be a God-fearing Jew that brought the condemnation of God's prophet, John the Baptist. The prophet who came speaking the word of God, confronted Herod 
in his sin. And John didn't just call for Herod to repent one time. He continuously, continuously rebuked Herod to his face. Verse four, look at verse four. It says, John had been saying, that's a continuous verb. He had been saying on and on. He had been saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. And by lawful, he means according to God's law. And so how does Herod respond? How does any worldly king respond when he's confronted? The worldly response, the call for repentance is to shut it up. Herod has John put in prison. Herod thought if John were in prison, then he could be silenced. Can't do any damage in prison. Matthew tells us in verse five that Herod actually wanted John put to death. See, Herod's guilt led to his desire to shut up the voice of God, calling him to repent. And that desire to shut it up was so strong that he wanted to silence God's voice once and for all. It's not unusual. Just to silence, desire to silence the call of God to repent. It's not unusual to want to shut that up. We do that in all sorts of ways. We can silence that call for repentance simply by avoiding opening God's word, can't we? We can silence that call for repentance by avoiding gathering with the church when it's legal. Some of us, when we are caught in sin, we don't just avoid God's word. We don't just avoid gathering with the church. We avoid Christians altogether. Hebrews 3.13 says we are to exhort one another to keep one another from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You can't, buy, can't be exhorted by someone that you're avoiding, can you? Worldly kings avoid the call to repentance. And all of us born in the image of King Adam, sharing all the resemblances of King Herod, following the kings of the world, we're prone to do the same thing. We put the call to repentance in a little prison and we keep it far from our ears and far from our hearts. You're here this morning, or if you're watching this morning online, and you're, and you're aware of this feeling of guilt, and your every desire is to silence the call to repentance, friend, do not silence the voice of God calling you to repentance. Repent and turn to Christ. A worldly king is guilt-ridden. The second defining characteristic of a worldly king is that he is controlled by the fear of man. Look at the second part of verse five. See, from the beginning, Matthew tells us, Herod wanted to put John to death, but he didn't because of something else that worldly kings have trouble with. Something that was keeping him from doing what he wanted to do. You see that in verse five? It says he feared the people. The people under Herod's rule held John to be a prophet, and Herod didn't want to kill John and have an uprising on his hands. He loved his position of power far too much. 
If an uprising occurred, then Caesar would depose Herod the same way he had removed his brother Archelaus from office. Herod feared the people. Herod feared Caesar. And fear of man is a fear that all worldly kings face. Herod's fear of man is all over the place in this story. He can't do what he wants to do with John at first because of his fear of man. And then it's his fear of man that leads Herod to to do something foolish to entertain his guests by having his stepdaughter slash niece dance, probably seductively for these men. After Salome pleased Herod by her dancing, it's fear of man that leads him to try and impress his guests by offering Salome anything that she wants. He wants to be seen by them as powerful. He wants to be seen by them as having so much fortune that he can offer this girl anything. Mark, in his account of this story, tells us that he even offered up to half of his kingdom. Ironically, it's this same fear, this fear of man, that kept hearing Herod from killing John that leads him to murder John. Look at verse 9. After Herodias, the, the, the wife, niece, sister-in-law, manipulates the drunken chaos of this birthday banquet. Herod ends up caught between the fear of the masses, the people, and the fear of his guests. You see where fear of man has got him? Look at verse 9. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He commanded John's head be removed from his body and brought on a platter. So so why did Herod have John murdered? Well, because he got himself into a stupid pickle. He, He made a foolish promise to his stepdaughter and then had to keep it because of his guests. He was controlled by his guests. And you should know that these weren't just any guests. These were the rich and powerful. Mark tells us in his account that the people in attendance at this, this banquet were nobles. They were the military men. They were the leaders of Galilee. It's a who's who of Herod's little kingdom, and Herod is forced between fearing these people and fearing the masses. Think about this predicament for a moment. Should this powerful, rich pseudo-king who kind of rules over half of Judea, who personally knows Caesar Tiberius, emperor of the known world. I mean, this guy's got connections. Should he rebuke the absurd and wicked request of this 13-year-old girl who is obviously being manipulated by her power-hungry mother? Or does he keep his promise, as foolish as it is, and show these rich and powerful people that he is the big-chested man that he claims to be. To someone who fears man, doing what's right isn't really an option here, is it? Not when your reputation among the elite is at stake. In fact, doing the right thing didn't even show up to this party. He wasn't invited. See, to fear man is to be controlled by others. Herod is controlled by the desires of his stepdaughter. He's controlled by his wife. He's controlled by the opinions of these powerful people who've come to his birthday banquet. 
And being controlled by these people, fearing them far more than he fears God, he lives in constant fear and he gives in to this vicious request and he has John killed. The fear of man always leads to disastrous consequences. So let me ask you, those of you who are awake, are you controlled by the opinions of others? Does what other people think of you lead you to act the way you do? Does it lead you to say the things you do? Do you wear the clothes you do? Do you spend your money the way you do? Do you watch what you do and post what you do on social media because of the fear of man? Is how you present yourself to the world around you the way it is because your greatest concern is what others think about you? Or are you controlled by the always right, always true, always good, and always holy fear of God Almighty? Do you fear man or do you fear God? Are you following in the footsteps of King Herod or do you, like John the Baptist, fear God? John had no fear of man, not as far as we can see. John obeyed God rather than man. John stood up to power to proclaim the truth. John, like all people who fear God rather than man, though, lost his life. But his reward, you should know, is far greater. His reward is far greater than being thought well of by a few muckety-mucks from Galilee whose names we don't even know now. John, was thought well of by Jesus Christ, whose name is above every name. There's greater peace and comfort in knowing that you are loved by Jesus Christ than there is in having the entire world think highly of you. You don't even have to earn the favor of Jesus Christ. You never did. He has already shown his favor on you. Even when you hated him, he died for you. To chase the honor and appreciation of the world, to fear man, in other words, will always, always, always leave you feeling empty. It will leave you wanting more. It will lead to one confusing dilemma after another to receive the love of Jesus Christ in faith will never disappoint you. Never. Herod laid a banquet before these powerful men and he entertained them, attempting to put on airs that he was a free man who can do whatever he wanted The truth, though, is that Herod, like all worldly kings, was enslaved. He was enslaved to the fear of man. He was enslaved to his own guilt. He was enslaved to sin. Herod lived his life in a dungeon far darker than the dungeon that he had John put in. Herod wasn't free. Herod was in absolute bondage. Herod's enslavement... His enslavement to sinful desire caught him up 
in lust for his brother's wife. His enslavement to sin led to his divorce that led to a disastrous war. His enslavement to sin led him to to parade out this little girl to dance for him and his drunk cronies. A little girl who as a result of her stepfather's bondage to sin would grow up running from one incestuous relationship to another, seeking the power and satisfaction that her parents taught her to look for. Herod was not in the least bit free. He was caught in sin, and he had no way out. See, the kings of the world are not really kings. They're slaves to the ruler of the world, the prince of the power of the air. Worldly kings are puppets doing the bidding of the great enemy of God, all the while thinking they're free. That is the deceitfulness of sin. Next week, we'll look in our next passage at at the true king, the one who in the desert temptation showed his rule over Satan. And then in his death, he showed his rule over sin. And then in his resurrection, he showed his rule over death itself. But you need to know that this king's banquet, this good king's banquet isn't for the rich and powerful who have it all together and can provide for themselves. This king's banquet isn't for those who have what they think they have in abundance. No, this king prepares a banquet for the needy, for those who cannot provide for themselves. This good and true king gives us what we can never get on our own. King Jesus gives us the one thing that Herod could never buy with all his wealth. He gives us freedom from sin. Living in Jesus' kingdom, we live a happy life in the fear of God. Knowing that, that even in that life, we may end up like John the Baptist, but we fear God and not man. In his kingdom, we share in his righteousness. In Jesus' kingdom, we're freed from the guilt of Adam. We're freed from the sin that we're born into, and we're freed to live in obedience to God. This good king is dependent on no one. He is enslaved to no one. If this morning you're following the kings of this world, trying to rule over your own life, but in truth, enslaved your passions. Turn and follow the good King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, would you reveal to us just how good and perfect our good King Jesus is? Lord, reveal to us, as you have already in your word, the emptiness of this world. The wickedness 